If you've got your Bibles, we're still in the Gospel of John, John 16. <clears throat> and almost every passage we talk about this morning will be up on the screen. So I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to John 16, 16 through 33. I didn't say anything halfway, fun, halfway funny. I didn't need that. He gave me a little rim shot just for drinking my water. I want to talk to you about one of those days. Have you ever had one of those days that can be described as apathetic? I thank God that they don't happen very often. But have you ever had one of those Have you ever had one of those days? I just, they're just, you ever have one of them? They're meh. You ever had a meh day? Uh, Galatians 4.15, Paul says, in those days, what then has become of the joy you felt? That's a good question to ask. When you're in one of those days, Paul says, what then has become of the joy you felt? Jesus Christ did not save us to live joyless lives. Never settle for a lack of joy in your life. Never let joylessness cut a rut in your life where you get so bogged down and so deep into it, you cannot see up above the ruts into the joy that Jesus Christ wants to pour into your lives. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for us to get stuck in a rut of joylessness. That's not what God has made us for. God has made us for joy. And we're going to look in John's gospel now, the 16th chapter. These words we're going to look at are Jesus' words for you. Here's the truth we're going to see in them. In the days when it's easy to talk about joy, in the days in our lives when everything is going well, when goodness is pouring into our lives and everything is going as expected, it's easy to feel joy in that. It's easy to talk about joy in that. When life is fantastic, we are not hard-pressed to talk about joy. When, when you are an Arizona State University fan, it's easy to talk about joy. And if you don't get that reference, just talk to a Michigan State fan after the service. 
And hopefully, they'll have listened enough to the message this morning that they will be in a place of joy. In a place of joy. But what about, what about when things are rotten in your life? What about when plans don't work out? What about when the challenges pile up and the hardships increase? In those moments, can you look someone in the eyes and tell them that there is joy in your life? When you're in one of those moments where your shoulders are slumped and there's a sigh of discouragement on your breath, can you look someone in the eyes and tell them that there is the joy of Jesus Christ in your heart? Do you have joy in all things? So that's what we're going to look at. Today and next week, we're going to look at how Jesus says we can have joy in all things. First thing we need to do is understand the context. Who, who is Jesus talking to here? You've looked at the passage. We've been studying the passage. If you're here for the first time, maybe you remember this passage. But who, who is the context? Who is Jesus talking to right now in this passage? Do you remember? He's talking to the disciples. Let's all say that together. The disciples. Who is Jesus talking to? Absolutely, you're right. He's talking to the disciples. And What's the context? He's talking to the disciples on the night before he goes to the cross. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he's talking to them before he goes to the cross. See, that, that fact alone is enough for us to take our time in these 18 verses in John's 16th chapter. Jesus is speaking to the disciples about a kind of joy that can face the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to my, to my painful humiliation and my suffering and my death. And Jesus, on the eve of that, he's talking to them about joy. And he's saying that, that my joy can be your joy. Facing the cross tomorrow. But Jesus says, with all of that happening, he wants them to know that he knows joy and that we can know joy in our lives. So the context, that's our context. Jesus wants his disciples to know real joy. In spite of a world that can sometimes overwhelm with sorrow and sadness. Jesus wants them to know joy. So today and next Sunday, we're going to look at how Jesus Christ brings joy into our lives. If you've got your Bibles open, let's start with the first verses there, John 16, 16 through 20, follow along. A little while, Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. 
and again a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he has said to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to talk to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What did I mean by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, here, here are some words. I'm going to go through a list, one word at a time. I'm going to go through a list of words that, that maybe describe some Christians you know. One word each. Maybe these words describe you at some time or another in your life. But I'm going to go through these words and think about these words. How they speak to you. How they fit into your life. How they speak to the lives of other Christians you know. Secure. Don't have to answer out loud. Just think about that word, how that fits. Secure, burdened. I mean, do, the, do these words define or describe you at any point in your life? Burdened, peaceful. Worried. Reasonable. Uptight. Relaxed. Pressured. Generous. Stressed. Joyful. How do those words resonate in your life at some time or another? The lives of people you know. Those are just a sampling. But those words, any one of those words, could probably describe most of us at any given time or place in our lives. It's a mixed bag. Is that the kind of joy that Jesus wants for us? Is that the joy Jesus wants for us? Does Jesus want for us a mixed bag? I've got great joy, but I worry a lot too. Is that what Jesus wants for our lives? I've got joy, but sometimes I'm like, ah, stressed out. Is that what Jesus wants for our lives? I've got joy, but I also get angry over many things. Is that what Jesus wants? Does it make sense? Would it make sense to say that, that, that those are the things that Jesus wants for our lives? What kind of joy does Jesus want for your life? Here's a thought to hang on to, and I, I, I run this through my brain several times a week. I would rather Christians be known for the joy they have than for what they are against. Can we say amen to that? That's absolutely right. I would rather Christians be known for the joy that they have than for what they are against. Do our moments of joy 
surpass everything else. I think we want that to be true. How does the attitude of a Christian compare to that of a non-Christian? In other words, is there a noticeable difference between the attitude and outlook on life between a believer and a non-believer? Is it an oxymoron to be an uptight Christian? Is it an oxymoron to be a stressed out Christian? Is it an oxymoron to be a burdened Christian? Is it an oxymoron to be a worried Christian? Now understand, our salvation is not dependent upon whether we're worried or uptight or any of those things. It's not a matter of salvation. But it is a matter of there ought to be a a qualitative difference between a believer and an unbeliever in our outlook on life, in our interactions with life with each other, in how we respond to difficulties and trials and hardships. There ought to be a qualitative difference between a believer and a non-believer. That's exactly Paul's point. And we've been looking at it for a while now. That's exactly Paul's point in Galatians 5, through 23, when Paul says Christians are what? Christians are loving, and Christians are joyful, and Christians are kind, and Christians are gentle, and Christians are patient, and Christians are good, and Christians are faithful, and Christians are self-controlled. And what you hear in Paul, you hear in Paul exactly that he has heard this teaching from John 16. What Christ had taught his disciples had been passed on. And Paul knew this teaching in John 16. And so Paul is able to use it as the foundation for what he writes in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Paul is saying, this is the result of what Jesus meant in the upper room when he talked about joy. Here's what's important to remember. And this is huge. In these verses, Jesus gives us the key for joy in our lives. There's no other place to find true and lasting joy except through a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? There is no other place. There is no other place. It is as we sing this wonderful song, right, Ben? We sing a great song, in Christ and Christ alone. My salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. But building on that, my joy is in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus talks about the difference between living with apathy and worry or with the excitement of finding joy each and every day. What Jesus offers us is a joy that will never disappear or disappoint. No matter what you are experiencing or going through in your life, Jesus is offering a joy that will never disappoint and it will never disappear. Do you want that kind of joy? See, this passage asks us, do you want that kind of joy in your life? Do you have, do you have that kind of joy in your life? As we've seen for several weeks, chapters 13 and 16 through 16 are pivotal, are pivotal for the movement of John's gospel. They take place at the end of Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know that in the Garden of, Geth- after, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where Jesus will be betrayed, and that's where Jesus will be arrested. 
and Jesus will be sent to the cross to suffer and to die. So that it is important for us to keep in mind that this teaching, this teaching right here, right now, happens just a short time before all that horrible stuff takes place. Somebody has actually timed out John chapters 13 through 16, this pivotal conversation in the upper room. Somebody's actually timed it out, it's easy to do, and this conversation recorded in John 13 through 16 takes roughly 30 minutes. That's all it takes. It takes 30 minutes. Can something that changes your life take 30 minutes? Absolutely it can. With this pivotal teaching, God offers dramatic change for people's lives. And that's something we all need when it comes to joy. So between now and next Sunday, we're going to look at three requirements for real joy. Not joy as the world gives, but as Christ gives to us. Three requirements for real joy. First, you have to understand God's process. How does God bring joy into my life? See, if, if you don't understand God's process for joy, then you're going to spend a lot of time lost, wandering in a land of confusion. What that means is you are going to subject your life to an endless cycle of ups and downs of joy and no joy when you don't understand God's process, when you think joy is found someplace else in the world, when you don't understand the process by which God brings joy into your life, you're going to bring stress into your life. You're going to be fighting against God. God wants to pour joy into your life and he wants you to understand what it really means and how it really happens. And, and, and if you don't understand that, you're going to be distracted in lots of other different directions and you're going to think that's where joy is and you're going to be fighting against God. To understand God's process for bringing joy into your life, first you have to deal with confusion. Isn't that part of life? Life is confusion. In verse 17, the disciples are confused. They ask, what is this that he says to us? They don't understand. What's going on? Have you ever felt that way? Something's happening in your life and you're wondering... I don't know what this means. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Something goes wrong in your life and you say, I don't know how to make this right. I don't know if this can be made right. Things come crashing in on you and you ask, why is it happening? What does this mean? What's going on right now? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever gone through that in your life? When you're going through a time when you don't know the answer yet, here's something you might want to keep in mind. God knows more than we do. Let's all say that together. God knows more than we do. Let's do that one more time. 
God knows more than we do. In their confusion, did you catch what the disciples do? Now, they're in the upper room. This isn't a huge auditorium, the upper room. It's not an expansive arena. Man, they're, they're in the upper room, and did you catch what they do? They are confused about what Jesus says. They're confused about the meaning, and what's the first thing they do? What do they do? They talk amongst themselves. Jesus is right there. And what do they do? They talk. They're probably whispering under their breath. Why do they do that? Jesus is right there in the room with them. It's so obvious. Go to Jesus first. Ask Jesus. What we're looking at here is foundational to every, every Bible study you will ever do. One of the things... I like to talk about a lot. So when we're talking about a passage of Scripture, when I'm reading something that Jesus is teaching, sometimes what do I say? Jesus in teaching his disciples is also teaching us. Let's say that again. Us. Jesus in teaching his disciples, he's also teaching us. That's the point. That's why John included this story. So we could be taught by Jesus. And so the first place we go when we're confused as we go to Christ, what is he teaching? What is he saying in the New Testament? Turn to Jesus first. Knowing what Jesus says in the Bible is key, it's crucial. Of course we have good Bible study tools. Of course we talk to each other. But the first place we go is to, is to Christ in the scripture. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Go to Jesus first. But see, what happens what happens sometimes in times of confusion, we first and foremost talk amongst ourselves, don't we? We get the advice and the opinions of others. And what we end up doing is we end up sharing our own mutual ignorance. It's, it's kind of like saying, you know what? I'm uninformed right now. You're uninformed right now. Let's all talk and be uninformed together. Does it make sense? Absolutely not. It's okay to talk to each other, to talk to each other, but you go to Jesus first. What does Jesus say? Here's the choke point with confusion. See, we're, we're normally big picture people. We generally need to see and know what's going on. That's how we can plan and prepare. We have, we have life plans. We have three to five year planning, right? Some people have, I, I heard this just recently, some people have a thing called a, it's really kind of wackadoodle to me, but what am I? It's, kind of, it's called a vision board. Is that right? It's a vision board. Some people have a vision board. Um, um, uh, that's how we plan and prepare. We think big picture. And so we want massive downloads of information. We like to have all the blanks filled in. But listen to Hebrews 10, 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. What he means is Jesus will come again. When Jesus comes again, then all the data gaps will be filled. When Jesus comes again, there's going to be a massive download of analytics and we're going to know everything. 
The apostle Paul puts it this way, I I now see as if in a mirror dimly, then when Christ comes, I shall see face to face. I shall be fully, I shall fully know even as I have been fully known. But that ain't going to happen until Christ returns. So there are, listen, there are going to be times of confusion. We don't see all that God is doing, and we can't see all that God is doing. Here's what God is teaching us. It happens in our confusion, and it's two really big things. First thing is, let the confusion drive you deeper into the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going on. I may not completely figure it out, but Christ, I love you, and I worship you, and I trust you. Drive me deeper into the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And second, receive his gift of joy, even in the midst of confusion, so you are not pounding out that rut of of being downcast and discouraged where you cannot see up the walls of the rut you've created and you cannot see the joy of Christ beyond the rut. Receive his gift of joy so you don't stay on that rutted road for long and you can see his joy. The first thing we need to do is let Jesus overcome our confusion. In other words... I don't know everything that's going on, but that's okay because Jesus Christ is Lord. And what I do know is that he gives me joy. Second thing. First, we have to see how God works the process. The second thing is you have to understand grief. Grief is one of the greatest killers of joy in our lives. And the reality is, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. The reality is there is going to be loss in life. There's gonna be hurt. The disciples spent three years with Jesus and they've listened to him and they've seen his interactions with others and they've been taught by him and they've seen his healing and now he's telling them he's going to be going away. He's going to suffer and die and leave them. Loss, he's telling them loss is real. This happens in life, you cannot escape it. There are going to be bad things that happen. happen. But see, the thing is, you can't hang on to them. The bad stuff in the past, you can't hang on to it because it's going to rob you of your joy for today. Loss sucks the joy right out of us. And so here's where the perfect storm hits. There's going to be loss in our lives. One of my favorite words in the English language that describes the inevitability of loss is inexorable. I love the word inexorable. I found out, by the way, I found out, here's here's a description of inexorable. I found out that the Hall of Fame quarterback John Elway and I have something in common. Did you know that? John Elway and I both have something in common. His his started happening long before mine started happening, but Elway and I both have in common this this, this, this thing with our, with our tendons in our hands, and they start to tighten. 
Like rubber bands, they start to knot and tighten and there's nothing that can be done about it. It is inexorable. When my granddaughters were little girls, they used to love playing with the knots in Papa's hand. I'm not gonna show them to you after worship, don't worry about that. But it's, 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 it's inexorable, it's going to happen. Sooner or later, my hand will look like a claw. It cannot be stopped. That's loss, inexorable. It's life. The perfect storm is when loss crashes into a world that cannot give us joy. See, we think the world can give us joy. We think if we look in the right places, there's joy for us in this world. And if you think it's the world's job to give you joy, or if it's another person's responsibility to bring joy into your life, then you are grossly confused and you're gonna be, you're gonna be grossly hurt because it's nobody's job to bring joy in your life. It's like I used to always like to say, I used to say this to my, to my, to my own children and now I say it to my grandchildren, um, that uh, anytime, anytime anybody says I'm bored, and, and I give you permission to use this with your kids or grandkids. Anytime, anytime somebody says I'm bored, I always tell them, no, you need to rephrase that. You need to say I'm boring. Changes your outlook, doesn't it? Because the world does not exist to entertain you. The world does not exist to lift you out of the doldrums of life. The world can't give us joy. Your life in this world isn't where joy is. Joy is in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand. Please, please, please don't go thinking I'm using this as some sort of escapism. I'm not. Because one of the things we've already learned from John's gospel is that once you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you already have eternal life. That's clearly taught in the Gospel of John. Once you accept that Christ is your Lord and Savior, you already have eternal life. In Christ, you have a taste of heaven right now. That's why the Apostle Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Eternity with Christ. Now understand, eternity with Christ is already here. It's now, and it's only going to get better when you die. So you, you have joy in the face of loss because your eternity is already now. Starting the moment you said to Jesus, the, the, the moment you said yes to Jesus Christ, God began pouring joy into your life. So finally, here's something you might want to write down. Grief is a part of the process of joy. Grief is a part of the process of joy. So that's where we're going to end. I encourage you to come back next week. The first Sunday of fall, Come back next week and we'll fill that in as we let Jesus speak joy into our lives. Let's now sing.
Visit us on the web at tecumsehcove.org. That's T-E-C-U-M-S-E-H-C-O-V-E dot O-R-G.